0: A short verse this evening and a, and a simple sermon, I'll say. Uh, this is a wonderful text, Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, a fantastic text. And my, uh, my intention for you this evening, my desire for you, is that uh, we could examine this text in such a way that you'll understand it for the rest of your life. And that uh, as you pursue the Lord Jesus Christ, this would be a place that you can turn to again and again with confidence, uh, knowing what it is that it means and what it's saying, and that it would set your heart on fire. I'll read the text. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. This is your service and this is your sermon. We not only commit it to you. Uh, But we ask that you would speak through me. We ask that you would make your word known, not just that we would have more information or better understanding, but that our hearts would love your word and our feet would quickly move to obey it with delight. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. For, uh, for years now, I just learned the Tate Museum in London has asked what is, it has referred to as a leading artist to design their annual Christmas tree. I guess the Tate is a, uh, is a modern gallery. And sometimes the artists use real trees and they decorate them and sometimes they just make one. Last year, the tree was a real tree. It was decorated with, in the traditional German style with beeswax candles and the candles were of such a length that if you lit them at twilight, they would all burn out almost at the same time at the very moment that the museum closed, you know, within as much as you can estimate with a wax candle. Uh, the year before that, uh, somebody took pieces of cloth and dyed them and attached them to an iron frame and that was the tree. Uh, in 1993, they took, the artist took a live tree, roots and everything, turned it upside down, painted the roots gold, and hung it from the ceiling. Modern artists, what are you gonna do? Uh, this year, the leading artist was Giorgio Sodotti. And he put up a tree, a real live tree, about 25 foot, with no decorations at all. It's just a plain 25 foot tall Norway spruce. He called it Flower Snake. Uh, his other work is known for celebrating the power of nothing. Uh, He wanted people to recognize the natural elegance of the tree and to think about the potential of the object. He said it was a challenge to present a tree that was naturally effortless, a tree as a tree as art. It's not hard to imagine what the phone call that morning might have been like. Hey, uh, Giorgio. Hello. Uh, Yes, we were expecting you an hour ago. Uh, What are you coming in? Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Who is this then? It's in down at the Tate. Are you bringing the tree in? I forgot the, the tree down at the museum thing. Remember? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm bring it right in. It's great. You're going to love it. It's really, it's fantastic. Then. All right. I'll get it right in. So zip into the tree lot and zip over to the museum. Set it all up. There it is. Then. All right. Huh? Yeah. Oh, where are the decorations? We paid paid you $25,000 for this. There's no decorations. Of course there's no decorations. It's about the power of nothing. Well, that's preposterous. What do you mean the power of nothing? You can't give us a naked tree. $25,000. I'm a leading artist. Oh, right, I forgot. I'm sorry. It's brilliant, man. It's brilliant. (laughs) Genius. My children could not have done that. Definitely not. I know that many of you wish that your children could paint like Michelangelo or compose like Mozart at age four, but now your child can, in fact, decorate like a leading artist. Uh, I hope that you recognize in that that the emperor has no clothes, or has no more clothes than the tree has decoration in any case. But Mr. Sedoti figured he's already earned the title. He's cutting edge. He's a leading artist. He's a groundbreaker. And so he doesn't actually have to put any more effort into the work. Since he's already earned the title, he doesn't have to put any more effort into the work. This is often a characteristic of Christians in our lives. The work of Jesus, we know, is on our behalf complete. He has completed a righteous life, and then he has given us his record of righteousness. He has taken our sin and paid for it on the cross. We have the inheritance. We have the title. We're children of God. We have the promise. We have all of that. We're going to spend eternity in the presence of God on the new earth. These are all God's promises, and they are all very true. It's finished. Underline, full stop. And then sometimes we start thinking, well, if that's the case, then what is there for me to do it's all done shouldn't i just wrap it up and throw in the towel now it's worth stressing that we never do anything because it's going to get us to heaven that's called legalism and it's about as pernicious an enemy of the gospel of Jesus Christ as you're going to find but if you want to live as a follower of Jesus Christ without actually following you have to well you have to ask Who's the real artist? The man who works every day at his art, who loves the creative process, who seeks to investigate and create and seeks more and more opportunity to share what he's done, even if he gets no accolades, and no attention. Or the man who has replaced actual creativity with a clever story and a title. Which one is the real artist? What is the quality of a real Christian? Our text is really just an exhortation to the very thing that Jesus told us, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. It first uh, gives us the motivation. It gives us three exhortations and finally tells us how to complete what we are exhorted to do. And so I want to walk through very simply uh, this text in the order in which it's given to us. So who knows the verse starts with the word, Therefore. And uh, like all good biblical scholars, when you see the word therefore, you ask, what's the therefore there for? And of course, uh, I know that's an old preacher joke. <laughs> Peter's like, I know already. Come on. Uh, it's a it's a great way, though, kids, when you see the word therefore, it means look up to see what he was just talking about. To, so you can relate it to what follows. And of course, uh, he's looking at Hebrews chapter 11. Which we refer to as the Great Hall of Faith, the saints of the Old Testament, uh, learning about their own faith. Uh, it's men and women of the of the uh, ancient era, and uh, of course we we have neither the time uh, nor the uh, vocal power to go through every one of them right now. Um, but simply put, these are men and women who believed God, who th- they believed what they couldn't see. And they acted on what they knew to be true, although they didn't see it. Uh, Joseph believed that his descendants would take the land promised by God, but he didn't simply meditate on it and think that will be great. He actually took action. He made plans to make sure that his remains were brought back to the promised land and buried. Uh, Noah believed God concerning the flood. And he didn't just say, well... Yes, I truly believe that God is going to send a flood. He actually took action in relationship to that belief, and so he built an ark. Abel believed in God, and so he made a sacrifice that really cost him something. Although Abel couldn't see God, uh, Noah didn't see the flood until it came, but he spent a lot of time building that ark, and Joseph was still in Egypt when he died. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So our text tells us that since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, so this is our motivation to everything that follows. Now, there's an interpretive question here that's worth pointing out. Great cloud of witnesses. And what exactly are they witnessing about? It could be that they are witnessing us. Many commentators have suggested that they are looking down on us, as it were, uh, in the stands, cheering us on, encouraging us, saying, we finished this race and you can do it, too. Um, as I see it, a witness uh, is one who observes and then speaks. We see this in Hebrews 10, uh, 28. It also fits, fits the context of 11, 4, uh, speaking of Abel. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. I think the point here is that they are witnesses to us, just like you might go out and witness to somebody about Jesus. They are here witnessing to you that the life of faith in things that are invisible is the sort of life that you ought to be living. The incomparable and now 400 year old King James Version puts it like this and uh, referring to Abel and by it, he being dead yet speaketh. They speak by their lives. They speak by their faith. They tell us, these great saints in chapter 11, that no matter the end, whether for suffering or for glory, whether they received back their dead by resurrection or they suffered torture, the world was not worthy of them. And by faith, by that faith, the dead yet speaketh. All of these men and women died not having seen The one that they were hoping for, but they died in the hope of what we now know to be true. We have accounts of it. You have received that which they did not receive. They were waiting for Christ and, you know, Him by name, you know what his life is like, you know, how he taught, what things he did. You know how God solved that fascinating and terrifying problem of being a God of mercy and a God of wrath. At the same time, he gave you the mercy and he poured out his wrath on his son. God took your wrath on your behalf. And yet, despite the disadvantage of not seeing what almost all of us tend to assume, they finished the race well because they finished it by faith. Run strong like they did. Now the three exhortations. The first is to lay aside every weight. The same word for lay aside is used to describe what the men did when they uh, what Paul did previously Saul as he took the coats of the men that went to uh stone Stephen they laid they laid them their coats down at his feet and so the idea is very simply uh taking something off putting it down not being in charge of it anymore Uh now you'll notice it says uh let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings. So it's lay aside, wait, and lay aside sin. Uh, the same same verb for I forgot. Is that a split infinitive? I can't remember. Uh, it's the same verb for these two different actions. The two words though are not precisely synonyms. Wait and sin. Uh, sin is the specific act of rebellion, betrayal, and unfaithfulness that you commit. The opportunities for good that you allow to just sail on by. But the weight is larger scale. And weight is, uh, is here referring to things that might actually be good under certain circumstances. Sin is never good under any circumstance. The weight here is things that actually can be good. The idea here is uh, of a runner, of something that's good, say a, a runner carrying extra weight on his body. Uh, you can run like that, but that's not a way to win. Um, in different uh, in different Greek texts, that same word is used to describe uh, a bulk of firewood that somebody has to carry or uh, or the weight of a child in the womb. Now, of course, having firewood or a mother pregnant with child. Is, oh, both of those are wonderful things. One's I say the pregnancy is even better than the firewood. Um, now, I spent a little bit of time moving firewood around every day. It's in little pellet form because we have a pellet stove. And it's a 40-pound bag of wood pellets that I have to huck up on my shoulder and, and carry it from the garage into the living room. It's not, it's not too much to carry. But imagine if I went out to run a road race carrying that bag. It's very unwieldy. And so uh, you, went, you, let's, you go out to cheer me on. And here I come, and I'm running along, and I'm, and I'm lugging my 40-pound bag of pellets. And you say, I thought you wanted to win this race. I say, carrying the stuff. I say, I do. I really want to win. Well, why don't you drop the bag of pellets? It's slowing you down. Now, can you imagine if I said, listen to this guy. What's so evil about carrying a bag of pellets? What are you against? You're such a legalist. What's so wrong about carrying pellets? Lots of Christians carry bags of pellets. How am I supposed to get the pellets from my car into the house? This guy is crazy. And meanwhile, I'm the one running along with a 40-pound bag. It's not a sin to carry a heavy bag. But under the right circumstances, it's stupid. (laughs) Would you want me to drop that bag if I really wanted to win? Will you drop the bag? Will you take a look at your life? and find out what what that extra weight is that you're lugging along, and drop it. You are in a race, and you carry a load with you. It doesn't mean that you won't finish, but it almost guarantees you won't win. Think about it. It's not wrong to buy a car or a house or nice clothing. But are you in a situation where buying those things feeds greed and materialism in your life. It's not sinful to play a video game, but they can be a wonderful tool for avoiding responsibility and uh, shirking out of relationships. It's not sinful to sleep. The Lord Jesus slept himself. We're made to sleep. Psalm 127 says, It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, For he gives his beloved sleep. Sleep is a gift of God. And yet, if you're sleeping in the wrong circumstances, you get Proverbs 20.13. Love not sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes, and you will have plenty of bread. And so, is sleep sinful? No, unless you're doing it at the wrong time. If too much sleep is keeping you from following Jesus, put it off. Men and women, if they're going to get married, and we're not going to go back to arranged marriages, they have to talk to one another. And eventually, if they're going to get married, they say sweet and kind and affectionate, eyelash-batting things to one another. But there's a world of difference between a young man who gives special attention to a certain young lady because he thinks someday he'd like to make her his bride, And a young man who gives special attention to every young lady because he wants to keep his options open and it feeds his ego. It's not wrong to talk to girls, but it's wise or foolish depending on how you do it and how often and to whom. You can still run with a bag. You just won't run very fast. What is there in your life that is not serving you but can be excused as being good? What's your bag of pellets? What foolish situations do you find yourselves in? What are you unwilling to let go of? What friendships might be holding you back? What business situations do you find yourself in that are ample opportunity to compromise on your Christian faith? What opportunities are you avoiding? What would life in your house be like with less Internet, less movies, less television? Lay aside that which is not necessarily sinful, but that which is not helping you to run the race with great speed. The second thing, lay aside sin which clings so closely. This is a little more obvious than weight. As I said, sin is sin no matter what the circumstance. The words used here are sin which clings so closely. Uh, sin which has surrounded you, sin, sin which has beset you, the sin which is the staticky sock uh, on your sheets when they come out of the dryer. The author is not simply speaking of uh, sin as a general category, but specific sins which hamper us day to day and week after week. You're being exhorted here to look at those things that you've been struggling with for a long time. Those secret sins that... You really haven't told anyone about the sins that maybe you've even stopped confessing to the Lord because you've given up hope that he's actually going to do something. Well, I have good news for you. 2011 may, in fact, be the year that the Lord does something about that. Listen to this text. Put off that sin. And third, to run the race with endurance. Now, uh. We're not being exhorted to run the race with endurance, uh, simply to pace yourself, to say, well, it's a long race and you've got a ways to go. So don't get too holy. Just kind of moderate it out so you don't wear yourself out. It means to prepare ahead of time. No marathoner goes out like a sprinter does. Uh, they wear different types of shoes. Uh, they train differently. They carry more water. It would be ridiculous For a man going out to run a sprint to carry with him half a liter of water. uh, As if he's going to get to the 25 meter mark and stop and have a sip and then continue on. (laughs) Congratulations, you lost. Uh, But for a marathoner to go out and have no way to get water uh, would be foolishness. So prepare, not just for faithfulness tomorrow, but for a year's worth of faithfulness. Now, I know, I know you, I know what you're like. I know what I'm like. You've heard two sermons on a similar subject today. We didn't plan that, so it must be the Lord is saying something to you. (laughs) And oftentimes, you're going to, that means I'm going to get up Monday morning, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to read my Bible and I'm going to be really kind to everybody and I'm going to be faithful all day. And we're going to have a nice devotional at night and then we might watch a wholesome television show, and go to rest and go to bed at night. By Wednesday, you're probably going to be frustrated. By Friday, you're going to be embarrassed. I know you've been down this road before. And so, as you consider and plan the weight and the sin in your life, plan for a year, thus making January 2nd a nice time to preach this sermon. Plan for, uh, know what kind of person you are. If you don't read well, plan to get the Bible on CD or MP3. Uh, If you're not a morning person, plan to pray with your family at night. Uh, If you're distant from your spouse, plan one night a week or one night a month to spend time with them. Uh, You have to pace yourself, not in the sense that you're going to have a moderate level of holiness, but in the sense... That you're not just out to impress yourself tomorrow. You're out to follow the Lord Jesus for the rest of your life. Plan ways to make that happen. Start slowly. If you're not someone who prays regularly, I'm not here to make you feel guilty. You probably feel enough guilt already. This is what I'm here to do. Take two minutes tomorrow and dedicate that time to pray. Pray for a few friends, for your family, and say the Lord's Prayer. And then on Tuesday, take two minutes at the same time and pray the same thing. And keep praying that for a week. And then the week after that. And after a couple weeks, you're going to want to pray for five minutes. And then pray for five minutes. And do that for a couple weeks. Don't be the man or the woman who goes out and says, You know what? I need an hour of prayer every day if I'm going to make it with the Lord. And you pray for an hour and a half Monday. And by Friday, you've forgotten all about it, and you don't even dare confess it because you don't want to bring it up again. Train. Start slowly. This is how change happens in the human heart, a little bit at the time, a little bit at a time. So after those three exhortations, we get the means. How do we do this? Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The New American Standard, I think, is a better translation here. Fixing our eyes upon Jesus is uh, probably the superior translation. It means to look at him steadfast, not wavering in some other direction. You can look at Jesus and then look somewhere else and look back. But to fix your eyes upon Jesus is really what the text is saying here. What I want to do is walk right through this and just explain to you what this means. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Jesus Christ founded our faith. He's the uh, another translation uses the word author. He's the author of our faith. He created it when he created humanity. He created us with a capacity for faith. He set the path before us. That salvation would be by faith. He ordained the means by which we would know him. The means of grace. And then he perfected it. He completed it. He championed our faith. He came and he did the very thing that he told us to do. We can't say, Jesus, it's too hard. Jesus says, I know it's hard. I did it. But don't worry, if you fail to do it, I'll give it all to you anyway. Just believe. He's the author and the perfecter. It's another way of saying he's the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning of our, of our faith and he's the end. That also means that you don't have to look anywhere else. You don't need a new technique. You don't need a new journal. You don't need a new program or a new church or a new preacher. You don't need a new Bible, despite the fact that they come out with new ones, with new covers every year. You already have the completion of your faith in Jesus Christ. There's nothing more to go. There's nothing more that needs to happen. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. And this, this is uh, joy in two senses. The joy that Jesus had at fulfilling the Father's plan and doing the Father's will. That was his delight. In the same way... Doing the Father's will is our delight. So often we think obeying God, well, that's a real drag, but I guess I'll do it because I've got to. It's our delight and our joy and our privilege to serve God with everything that we have. And if your heart is not finding joy in that, let your feet lead your heart. Start obeying and you will actually find joy in it. Uh, It's nowhere written that your heart has to precede your feet, Uh, but they are connected and one can't go very far without the other. It's not just his joy, but his joy for you. The joy set before him was your salvation. And so Jesus is not only taking joy in doing his father's will. He's taking joy in suffering on your behalf. He endured the cross, the worst and most shameful form of execution. Not that there aren't arguably more painful ways to die. There may be. I certainly wouldn't know. I don't know if anyone really could except the dead. But it's the most humiliating way. Uh, in, the, in the ancient world, it wasn't fit. Slaves, weren't, the slaves were fit to be crucified, but Roman citizens were not. It's humiliating. You're, you're hanging naked suffering, gasping for breath, while the worst dregs of society stand there laughing and mocking you. Utter humiliation. And yet, he despised the shame. That means, and this is an archaic word that they brought into a modern translation, uh, that means that he thought nothing of the shame. He ignored the shame. Because the joy of his Father's will and the joy of your salvation far exceeded the humiliation and the pain of the cross and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When he conquered, by death, he ascended into heaven after that and took his place of rule at his father's side. The way up was the way down. The way to great exaltation and great joy, to honor and glory, the way to get there is not go directly to heaven. It's through humiliation. It's through suffering. And so as you're seeking to fulfill these exhortations, of course it's going to be hard. Of course it's going to bring suffering. But we're to fix our eyes on Jesus as we do this. I want you to use your imagination for a moment. Uh, I don't know. This is... Something that I imagined, certainly not a vision or a dream, it was sort of, but it was also sort of the, the sort of dream that happens when you're awake and you're imagining, you're not trying to create, it just sort of comes to you. And I imagined being at the resurrection, what that would be like. At the resurrection, uh, of course, Jesus is still in the body. His, Jesus is a human being and he will remain a human being. And there will be billions and billions of people there. And so it could conceivably take a long time for you to actually meet Jesus in the flesh. Jesus is not in the flesh in his human nature. He's not omnipresent even at the resurrection. In his divine nature he is. But as a human being, he's only in one place at one time. And so it could take a long time. And I imagine, how will that be accomplished? How will Jesus go about meeting everyone? Of course, since we have an infinite amount of time in the new earth awaiting us, you'll actually get to meet with Jesus for an infinite amount of time, uh, even though it could take a long time between. I'll let you ponder that at home later. So I imagined that Jesus, that uh, here it is in the, in the resurrection, and, uh, and you receive a card. It's an invitation where you are the guest of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's finally come because you've been devoid of a sin nature now. You haven't been impatient, but you're glad to have that card. And so you arrive at the location, a beautiful place, perhaps a a, uh, copse with trees about, a clearing in the woods. And there are other people there. You're surprised to find that you're not the only one, but that it, It's like a small group. In fact, there's 11 other people plus yourself. Seems to be a good number. And as you talk with the people there, all of you are from different backgrounds, different races, different time periods on Earth's history. And you all speak the original language that you did your whole life, and yet you seem to understand one another. Just like if I say, hola, you know I'm saying hello, even if you don't know Spanish. So you understand and you speak, and it's like a family reunion with everyone coming together, rejoicing. Uh, There's one man there who has terrible burn scars on his face. The marks of honor of being a martyr. Those who are martyred get get to retain their scars as marks of honor and their commitment to the Lord Jesus. People stand up when he walks into the room. And he humbly smiles and gives all praise to Christ for his faithfulness. You speak with people unaware that there was even such a civilization as one that this woman comes from. And even though you're all from different places, everyone is wearing the same white robe. You're excited to be with these new brothers and sisters. And at last, a man comes in A herald, in fact. And he smiles at you with great joy in his eyes. And he says, brothers and sisters, I present your host, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in he walks, Jesus himself. And much to your surprise, he holds his hands out and he laughs with great joy. This great laugh that he's been waiting for you. You thought that you were there to worship Him, but it's almost like He's there and He is as delighted to see you as you're delighted to see Him. Maybe even more so. You find yourself falling down on your knees to worship Him, as does everyone else in the room. Everyone worshiping in one voice and yet with many different tongues. And Jesus is standing there receiving beaming over you, receiving that worship. And He's praising His Father. And He's blessing you, seeming to go from one to the other. Blessing God. Blessing you. The whole room is filled with worship and joy. And at last, He bids you stand. You all hold hands in a circle and sing a hymn. Sing a psalm, perhaps. He breathes in deeply. And He goes from one person to another. Tenderly, examining the scars, looking almost with admiration at the man who was martyred for his faith. He takes a woman and embraces her deeply. She's laughing and crying all at the same time. And he speaks with her softly. She smiles and nods her head. You don't know what they're talking about, but you know what has to do with her life on earth. The next man he comes to, he shakes his hand. You're not sure why. Jesus puts his arm around him and the man is just weeping, just sobbing. Tears are streaming down his face and he can't look up. Jesus stands with him and you notice that Jesus is in fact weeping with him. And they stand and they weep together, their tears mingling on the floor. Finally, the Lord takes that man, places his hands. You can still see the scars. Places his hands on the man's face and tells him to lift up his head. The man knows that he is forgiven and he doesn't doubt it. And the tears continue to come. The next woman he speaks to is almost giggly. You weren't really expecting that. She just seems overjoyed. Jesus whispers to her and she laughs. They're like old friends talking about good times they've had together. So many different reactions. I want you to think. What will he say to you when he comes to you? What will you say back? What will you think on as you think back on your life here on earth? And what do you wish you would do now? Who do you wish you were today so that you could speak with Jesus at the last day? Think about that day. Fix your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider that day by faith a hope in something that we cannot yet see but someday we will see. Think about what you want Him to say to you. And then run. Amen.